Hey, it's Mike, and this podcast is brought to you by Legion, my line of naturally sweetened and flavored workout supplements. Now, as you probably know, I'm really not a fan of the supplement industry. I've wasted thousands and thousands of dollars over the years on worthless supplements that basically do nothing. And I've always had trouble finding products actually worth buying. And especially as I've gotten more and more educated as to what actually works and what doesn't. And eventually after complaining a lot, I decided to do something about it and start making my own supplements. The exact supplements I myself have always wanted. A few of the things that make my products unique are one, they're 100% naturally sweetened and flavored, which I think is good because while artificial sweeteners may not be as harmful as some people claim. There is research that suggests regular consumption of these chemicals may not be good for our health, particularly our gut health. So I like to just play it safe and sweeten everything with stevia and erythritol, which are natural sweeteners that actually have health benefits, not health risks. Two, all ingredients are backed by peer-reviewed scientific research that you can verify for yourself. If you go on our website and you check out any of our product pages, you're going to see that we explain why we've chosen each ingredient and we cite all supporting evidence in the footnotes so you can go look at the research for yourself and verify that we're doing the right thing. Three, all ingredients are also included at clinically effective dosages, which are the exact dosages used in those studies that prove their effectiveness. This is very important because while a molecule might be proven to, let's say, improve your workout performance, not all dosages are going to improve your workout performance. If you take too little you're not going to see any effects. You have to take the right amounts. And the right amounts are the amounts proven to be effective in scientific research. And four, there are no proprietary blends, which means you know exactly what you're buying when you buy our supplements. All of our formulations are 100% transparent in terms of ingredients and dosages. So if that sounds interesting to you and you want to check it out, then go to www.legionathletics.com. That's L-E-G-I-O-N athletics.com. And if you like what you see and you want to buy something, use the coupon code code podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, and you will save 10% on your order. Also, if you like what I have to say in my podcast, then I guarantee you'll like my books. I make my living primarily as a writer, so as long as I can keep selling books, then I can keep writing articles over at Muscle for Life and Legion and recording podcasts and videos like this and all that fun stuff. Now, I have several books, but the place to start is Bigger, Leaner, Stronger if you're a guy and Thinner, Leaner, Stronger if you're a girl. Now, these books, they're basically going to teach you everything you need to know about dieting, training, and supplementation to build muscle, lose fat, and look and feel great without having to give up all the foods you love or live in the gym grinding away at workouts you hate. And you can find my books everywhere. You can buy books online like Amazon, Audible, iBooks, Google Play, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and so forth. And if you're into audiobooks like me, you can actually get one of my audiobooks for free with a 30-day free trial of Audible. To do that, go to www.muscleforlife.com forward slash audiobooks. That's musclefor.life.com forward slash audiobooks, and you'll see how to do this. So thanks again for taking the time to listen to my podcast. I hope you enjoy it, and let's get to the show. Hey, this is Mike Matthews from MuscleForLife.com. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for stopping by and listening. In this episode, I'm going to be interviewing Mark Ripito. Uh, if you've been in the weightlifting game for any period of time, you've probably heard of Mark or at least heard of uh, his 
best-selling book and very, very popular weightlifting program, Starting Strength, which is a book that I have recommended from the beginning um, and a book that was probably the first book that really made the point of heavy compound weightlifting is the real key as a natural weightlifter um, and really broke down proper form for me uh, on on the big lifts like the squat, deadlift, uh, bench press, and military press. Um, and, you know, I'm sure I probably, it's probably millions of people by now have uh, used Starting Strength successfully. Uh, it's a great program, great book. I definitely recommend you check it out. Uh, Mark, he's written other books as well. He has several best-selling books and probably is, is one of the most respected strength coaches around these days. So uh, I was pretty excited to have Mark on the show. He's also just a cool guy. Uh, so uh, I apologize on, on the lower quality of the audio. I was using a, a new program to record the, the Skype call, and it was working fine when I was testing it with a friend of mine, but for some reason uh, the the call with Mark it got a little bit scratchy, so I'm not exactly sure why, but I'm just going to go back to what I was using before, I guess. Um, so with that said, let's get to the interview. All right. Hey, Mark, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Mike. Always a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm excited. Uh, you are definitely I, I'm a big fan of your work. I've been recommending your, your work, uh, especially Starting Strength, of course, from, from the beginning. And it was uh, one of the first actual good workout programs that I was introduced to that emphasized heavy compound lifting. And it's kind of like one of those aha moments because I, I came from – when I first started weightlifting, I did the same, you know, I went and bought some bodybuilding magazines. I was 17, and I just wanted to impress girls. So uh, I went and got it. I think, I think we all started off like that. Mike. Yeah, that, I think that's just a rite, a rite of passage. Yeah. Uh, so, so I go and buy the magazine, and I do the shitty program, and undo all the isolation stuff, and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and it took me, I think, seven years. of. I stuck with it just because I, I came to enjoy the other benefits of, I mean, my body was okay, but I also, you know, there's a lot of other benefits of exercise, so it kind of just became a healthy thing to do. But um, when it was about seven years until I finally learned that if, as a natural weightlifter, if you're not emphasizing heavy compound lifting, you're just not going to get very far, basically. Well, you picked it up faster than I did. It took me quite a bit longer than seven years to figure that out. <laughs> uh, I'm just, I'm just kind of dense, basically. But, <laughs> yeah, right. But we, I tell you the process by which uh, I generated all this, all these theories and things that we put in the book is running a commercial gym and not really knowing any other way to do it, but teaching everybody how to squat, bench press, and deadlift and power clean. Uh, after you operate your gym in that way for about 20 years, teaching everybody that walks through the door the basic compound exercises, yeah. you accumulate quite a data set. Mm. And, uh, you know, I had machines in the gym. I had uh, uh, everything I needed at my disposal to accumulate quite a bit of empirical data. Yeah. Uh, most people don't understand that empirical data is not always generated by an academic peer-reviewed study. Empirical data is numbers. It is. It is. Yeah, it's observation. Objective facts. Observations. A set of observed facts. Yeah. And this, the process by which I observed all these facts, uh, eventually just leads to a logical conclusion, and that's where we are with the books. Yeah, and you know, it's kind of like. 
I, I, what I immediately think of is um, when I first started, like actually, because in the for for those first whatever years, I, I wasn't particularly trying. I wasn't even actually. I didn't realize that I could have a much better physique and be much stronger and be in much better shape for whatever reason. It was me and my friends, and we'd go to the gym, and no one was on steroids, so I wasn't really exposed to that. We just kind of went and did our thing. But when uh, after six or seven years or so, I started noticing when I was like, okay, I want to actually – I want to do more with my body, but I need to get educated. I knew that I didn't know really much. And a simple observation was a lot of the guys who had the types of bodies that I liked, I don't want to look like a massive bodybuilder, but, uh, you know, have some muscle, be lean, be strong. They all tended to train in that way. They were, you know, a lot of heavy weightlifting, a lot of squatting, a lot of deadlifting, a lot of military pressing, bench pressing, a lot of stuff I wasn't doing. So even that alone, where that was one of my earlier observations was like, "Mm, those guys are all big and strong and look good and they all tend to train in this way. I should probably look into that. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a it's the look that is typical of strength athletes, not bodybuilders. Right. Bodybuilding is all about hypertrophy and size and, and drugs. I mean, let's face it. And, and you know, uh, sure, sure, it's part of the equation. And uh, I mean, you're a fool if you don't recognize that fact. But it's you know, over and above the drugs, because there are a lot of strength athletes that take drugs, too. Yes, The physique that, that results is a, from heavy strength training is a completely different one than the big, fluffy, bodybuilder-looking look that wins the Olympia every year. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not a great big fan of big, giant pecs, and I like a grimmick physique over a, over a uh, Dorian Yates physique. Right. And, uh, you know, I think most people are, are that way. Yeah, and, yeah. The, um, the vast majority of guys I talk with, they want to look. The vast majority of guys that I've trained are, uh, are you know, are, are strength athletes. And the, and the look that you're talking about is the look that you get from, you know, getting your squat up to 550, get your deadlift up to 600, get exactly. your bench up to 350, get your press up to 200. Exactly. You know, at a at a body weight of over two hundred pounds. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. And uh, that's the that's the emphasis on the type of training that that we do. Yes. You know, we're I'm not a coach of elite powerlifters. I don't know anything at all about bodybuilding. I'm an Olympic weightlifting coach, although the Olympic weightlifting community is reluctant to admit that. <laughs> and and I uh, have been around a very long time, and I I. Have uh, you know learned over the over the course of thirty eight years in the gym business that you know essentially you and I are in the same business. We're dealing with entry level people. How do we start people out in the direction of their goal? Yeah, most effectively. Now, yeah. once a guy's been trained in five years, he has accumulated enough wisdom and intelligence about what he wants to do to make his own decisions about it. But that's not what I do. Right. We teach people how to do the squat, how to correctly perform the squat. And we teach people how to coach that from the perspective of why do we do it that way, yes. not this is the way Rip likes it done. Hmm. We, we want everything explained. We want answers to the question, why? And I think this is what sets our program apart from everybody else's. If we can't answer why, then we haven't thought about it enough. 
Yeah, and, and your book, and, Starting Strength, that was it, that was the beginning for me on proper. Like that's that's where I learned to squat. That's where I learned to deadlift. Right. That's where I learned to press. And I've stuck to those the principles in your book uh, sure. for for it's ever since. I mean, it's been close to five years now or so that I've been actually you know been training properly and the changes in my body have been. I mean, I was I was I expected something, but I didn't expect you know as much change as I saw. Um, and, you know, if I only would have known from the beginning. <laughs> well, we hear that a lot. The, uh, the, the important thing about answering the question why is that it might yield a different answer than, than you think. Yeah. It might, it might mean that you've been doing something wrong. But if you've never stopped to answer why, then maybe you could be doing it better if you thought about it a little bit more. And that's what we're trying to do. That's why we've tried to apply this 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 type of uh, first or first origins argument analysis to, to everything we do. Why do we do the squat the way we do? Hmm. Because it satisfies our 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 criteria for effective exercise, and we you know it's not immediately apparent why you should look at the floor yep. when you squat. Yep. That's not immediately apparent. Well, most people don't coach it that way. Yeah. But when we when we demonstrate to you that it actually works better, it's kind of a you know, it's hard to refute. It really is. Yeah, I agree. You know, a lot of people don't agree with that. But that's we have found over the years that it just works better. The way we teach it does just works better. We've changed several things up. Hmm. Because I'm not afraid to ask why and can I do this better? And if I can do it better, why don't I? Right. You know, so uh, I, I like to think it sets us apart. <laughs> so, so speaking of doing things better, let's talk about CrossFit for a second. <laughs> um, oh, good. I, I uh, obviously I get asked about it uh, a fair amount. Um, I wrote an article on it that has gotten a lot of traffic and a lot of mixed comments and whatever. Um, you know, I'm not a fan of CrossFit. I know that you're not, but I wanted to get your take on what do you think are the 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 downsides. Well, let's be fair. What are what are the pros and cons of of CrossFit? Well, I've got a fairly large amount of uh, attention from the article I wrote about that for Teen Nation right. uh, a while back. Right. And uh, let me first say that on balance, CrossFit has been a net positive for this industry. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you'd, you'd be hard-pressed hard to say that it's, that it's all bad. It's not all bad. I agree. Uh, it's it's it is highly dependent upon the guys at the gym that you happen to be. In. And if if you do that, if you're in the right gym and they uh, the people running the gym are experienced, then you are uh, in a situation where you're going to be subjected to a pretty productive strength program, mm-hmm. you know, and at, at least you're going to be exposed to barbell training. Yes. And barbell training is extremely important, as we know. Yes. The, uh, the problem comes with the primary uh, philosophy of CrossFit, which nowadays is not being called random. They want to call it constant variation instead of random. <laughs> because for some reason, for some reason, I like random, that. Random isn't good, and constant variation is good. And it's hard to market random. Oh yeah, we follow random. we follow random training. Random uh, training. 
But constant variation, see, that that can be very, very intellectual and can be very difficult for stupid people like me to understand. <laughs> so, you know, these things are obviously over my head. But, but the constant variation is the thing both that is the problem and the thing that makes it popular because CrossFit is not boring. Yes. Yeah, I mean, now, I get that from a lot, lot of people of that, shit, that like it. That's but it's one of not the things. boring. Yeah, right. and you also have the group, and, you know, everybody's kind of, like, doing the thing together. And Sure. Sure. People are social animals. Yeah. People like to associate themselves with groups. Uh, and if you can be associated with a group that not only is all doing the same workout in your room right there today at 5.30 after you get off work, and... A, a group of people all over the world that are also doing the same thing. That's pretty thorough social in-group kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and it works real well. It's very and people rabidly defend it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I can see why they would, because for most of these people, this is their first, their first exposure to hard exercise, the yeah. kind of exercise that you must do if it's going to be productive. Right. Well, anything works at first. My article, one of the probably the more intelligent articles I've written, is called The Novice Effect, and it's on my website at startingstrength.com. And it details specifically why CrossFit, P90X, Pilates, everything works at first yeah. for a novice who has never done anything. And in the, in a, with the inability to distinguish that effect from the actual potential of the program long term, most people are going to think that CrossFit works pretty well until they get hurt. Now, the, the buzz nowadays is for, for, for CrossFit defenders is to say there's no evidence. That I, I just saw a study uh, recently that actually showed a higher, higher uh, injury rate. I think it was higher than even Olympic weightlifting, which Olympic weightlifting is a dangerous. I mean, it, it's... Oh, I don't. I don't agree, Mike. Olympic weightlifting, even as a competitive sport, is not that dangerous. Well, it yeah. I mean, I guess I can't say it's dangerous. You have a higher chance of getting hurt doing Olympic lifting than you'd be just than you just like if you're doing a regular barbell training type program, right? Sure. Yeah. Sure. And I'll and I'll tell you exactly why that is in just a second. Okay. But uh, the the thing now that everybody that's defending CrossFit is saying is that there's no evidence. Well, one of the reasons there's no evidence is because if CrossFit affiliates won't submit the data, then, of course, there's no evidence. <laughs> if, they, if they won't cooperate, no, and there's not going to be any evidence. Either. Of course. But we don't need evidence from CrossFit affiliates. All we need to do is ask the doctor, the orthopedic surgeons and the physical therapists that end up treating these injuries what the latest and greatest thing that's increased their business is. Mm. That would be the way to do the study. Yeah. Don't involve CrossFit. Ask a thousand physical therapy clinics across the United States if they've seen an uptick in CrossFit-related injuries. At they've least all got half it written of the down people. on their report. They've all got the data. Yeah. That's where you find the data. CrossFit's not going to tell you. Yeah. Now, the question would be, why is CrossFit prone to produce injuries. And the, the, the answer for that is, is, is quite simple, but it's going to require some background vocabulary words. So let's start with what, is the, what does the term exercise mean? And, you know, we've, we've never 
had a serious argument about this because once you think about it, it's real obvious. When you say the term exercise, I'm going to go exercise today. I'm going to get some exercise. I'm going to not work, not not an exercise like the squat, right? But exercise the activity. Yeah, I'm going to go move my body around. In I'm so, going in to some move way. my body around, and I'm going to do it specifically for the effect it produces in my body today. Yeah. I'm going to move my body around because I want to get hot and sweaty and feel like I've accomplished something in terms of physical activity. I want to burn some calories. I want to burn some fat. I want to get sweaty and tired. I want to breathe hard. I want to help my heart rate and all this other shit. So what I, when I do that, I'm doing exercise, and the criterion for each one of those workouts is did I do something today that made me feel productive today? Right. In other words, my subjective judgment about today's workout is how did that workout make me feel today? Training, on the other hand, is a process by which people accomplish an objective goal in terms of physical performance. Mm -hmm. And since physical performances uh, are dependent on the specific nature of the performance, in other words, a yeah. What are you tra- what are you training? For, what are you training for? A person training for a marathon is not training with the same process that a person training for a powerlifting meet, because the physical adaptations are different and they're specific to the competition that you are training for. So the training is the process by which you accomplish a goal through time, and in that context, each workout is important in that it is a component of the process. We don't care about how we feel today because that's not the point. Yeah. The point is what we do yes. at the competition that we're training for. Now, a competition... And even how that applies to the average person. I mean, yeah, if you're not competing or whatever, but there is a distinction there. There's a difference of you see a lot of people going in the gym to exercise and they it's random. It's a random motion almost is what it's like, you know... You, it seems like they just wander from machine to machine and sure. doing whatever versus yeah exactly versus training where you are working within a structured program that has you performing certain types of exercises but you're looking to progress you're looking to you know you want to add x pounds to your squat this right. year you want to add progression, x pounds progression at at some level is the point of training yes whether it's endurance progression or straight progression, progression, the progression is the hallmark of the training process. Yeah. Now, it's, it's obvious that these two vocabulary words are legitimate descriptions of human behavior, right? Right. Performance is what we train for. Now, what is a performance? A performance is the thing you do at the end of the training cycle when it counts. Right. You're in the marathon. You're at the meet. Hell, it may be just a PR test. If you haven't got the gumption to sign up for the meet, you just want to see what your squat, press, and deadlift are. In three weeks on a Saturday, that's the performance. You're mm-hmm. going to perform, and you're going to see how much you can do. Now, when you decide you are going to perform, the performance itself, becomes the objective. And if the performance is the objective and not health or fitness or 
whatever, then we're subjecting ourselves to a different set of criteria about how hard we are going to push today. A performance is when we see what we can do. Typically, we have trained for that. Think about CrossFit. Hmm. The workout of the day today is Isabel, which is 30 reps of snatch at 60 kilos for time. Hmm. If everybody's doing Isabel today, the fastest time is, is the one that, quote, wins, right. right? Or the fastest time is a PR. But when's the last time we snatched? <laughs> Have we prepared for this performance? Yeah. And if the answer is no, but if we are still willing to push ourselves in the absence of that training, in the absence of preparation for the performance, for a performance-level physical expression of our ability that day, then it's not surprising that we have now turned what should be a workout into a performance situation in which the uh, motivation is there sufficient to get you hurt. Yes. I mean, and, that, and it wouldn't right. be a big deal if... if you, you, if, you see if, what I'm saying? Absolutely. If, I mean, if, if the performance... A, if the today perform- isn't a workout. If yeah. today is a performance, well, performances are when you see what you can do and you're willing to accept the risk of injury. Yes. If you have not prepared yourself for... For the performance, then you increase the risk of the injury because the preparation did not take place. And this is what is fundamentally flawed yeah. with, with the CrossFit paradigm. And it probably wouldn't be such an issue if, uh, if our performance was who can do the most curls with 15 pounds. <laughs> like, right. Then we'd be okay. But then we just grabbed all our biceps. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but if we, in, in fact, if, if we take the example of a performance-level effort, and we repeat that several times a week, we are doing essentially what is the antithesis of training. Mm. The high eccentric component of this type of activity produces system-wide soreness. System-wide chronic soreness might as well be a disease process. (laughs) It is not productive. It is... People, it is not good to be bone-deep sore all the time. That's not good for you. Yes. That's not the normal, active, physical expression of the human condition. Yeah, and ironically, muscle soreness, this is a question I get fairly often. I actually wrote an article on it that I always link people to. Muscle soreness, just if you, the listener, don't know, it's not associated with muscle growth necessarily. Just because if you go do a bunch of downhill running, your legs are going to get sore, but it doesn't mean that you're building leg muscle by doing a bunch of downhill running, obviously. Uh, you know, I, I rarely get soreness sore. Soreness is only indicative of a high level of eccentric work to which you have not adapted. That's exactly. all it means. Yeah. That's all it means. It's eccentric work to which you have not adapted. It does not indicate good. It merely indicates a lack of adaptation. Now, training is predicated on stress, recovery, adaptation. That's the process. If you're constantly sore, then by definition, you are not adapting. Mm-hmm. You, uh, someone in training for a powerlifting meet 
is not typically sore all the time. Now, there's, a, there's eccentric components to all these movements that we do. Sure. But, but you adapt to, the, to that amount of, of eccentric work. You adapt to the negatives that you do in training, and you're not bone-deep sore. Okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm not very sore. I mean, I, get, I, I still, no. get, I still get sore in, in my legs from the squatting and deadlifting, but it's nothing, sure. it's nothing. I don't even notice it unless I'm like really, you know, if I go to massage my leg, I'm like, oh, I feel that. Otherwise, I, you know, I don't really notice it. And it's certainly not the objective for which you're training. Sure. It is a side effect of the process of getting stronger, but it's not the objective itself. Yeah. Uh, There are a lot of CrossFit people, and this is not all of them, of course, there are a lot of CrossFit people, that wear soreness, chronic soreness. Yeah, it's like a badge of... uh, As a badge of honor. Yeah. Hands torn all the shit. Calluses torn off their hands. That's a badge of honor. No, people, it's not. It's a badge of stupidity. Yeah. It means you're not training productively. It, means, it may mean you're performing all the time. It may mean you're exercising at a very, very high, intense level. Yeah. But it's not training and it's not productive, and chronic soreness is not good for you. Yeah. And it's going. It's going to lead to some sort of injury. When if if that if the person under in that condition in that state, if they haven't gotten hurt yet, they're going to get hurt. I hear from these people all the time. Mike, it's it's indicative of something much worse than that. Uh, chronic soreness and chronic respiratory inflammation produce systemic problems, cardiac problems. Some of you people listening to me right now. That pain in your chest you get 6 o'clock in the morning, that's not good for you. There are people listening to this right now that will know what I'm talking about. Hmm. I actually haven't heard that. That is a result of chronic inflammation and a lack of recovery. Yeah. So just keep that in mind. Yeah, and that's, you know, I, I wrote an article recently on uh, on frequency, workout frequency, and it's a murky subject scientifically, and there, but... Uh, where a lot of these CrossFit workouts, I mean, where you're you're hitting muscle groups over and over and over with such high volume workouts, uh, recovery, in my opinion, is an underappreciated thing. At least in a lot of uh, with more in the I wouldn't say aesthetics kind of world, but the bodybuilding, trying to build a good physique. Right now, it's it's kind of trendy to, to these very high high very very high weekly volume. Uh, with with quite a bit of frequency, and I'll get guys emailing me. They're they're training everything two or three times a week, which is not inherently bad. But these are big, long workouts, two or three times a week, and they're just getting beat into the ground. Sure. Uh, and uh, you know, so you recovery, see that yeah. the re- recovery capacity is a finite quantity. There's only so much you recover from. Yeah. You know, this is why people that choose to do so take drugs. Yep. Steroids increase recovery capacity. That's primarily how they work. Yep. And uh, for for the vast majority of people taking, yep. recovery is finite. There are only so many things. Yeah, I mean, your body has to it has to. And these, this is a real. It's not just like oh, until your your CNS settles down a little bit. No, it needs to rebuild tissue. It, it takes time. It only can do it so quickly. Anabolic processes take a finite amount of time. Yeah. And if you don't eat enough, if you continually beat yourself into the ground with very light weights, not only is the volume too high and the eccentric load too high, the intensity is too low to make you stronger. Yeah. Strength is force production. If force 
production, the amount of force being produced at any given rep is low enough that you can do a hundred reps with the thing, then it's not it's not a strength. No, that's just muscle strength. endurance, yeah. It's, it's just it's just muscle endurance, that's not how you get strong. Right. Yeah, and what what are your thoughts that on I mean I always one of the thi- my the critiques I always and I and when I when I come across people whether it's online or in real life that you know are doing CrossFit I it's I understand the reasons why if they like the group thing and they like all that but I always kind of warn them in that you know when you're when you're fatigued uh, you lose uh, awareness of you know you're, you're, let's say you're squatting heavy deadlifting heavy and this happens to me I think it happens to everybody where it it becomes harder to maintain your form you can but it takes a bit more. Uh, you know, even if I'm just doing a set of, let's say six reps, six or seven reps, 80, 85% of one rep max, those last couple reps, like I, I pay attention, like make sure that, you know, I'm getting deep enough in my squat or I'm not, you know, shooting my hips up on my deadlift. But when you're then now trying to do like as many reps as possible deadlifts, your, your, your form is going to just go to shit. Uh, well, that's just part of the deal. You know what I mean, and, the, and or the if you're if you're trying to hit, you know, uh, these Olympic lifts, which are which are tricky, and you need to learn them properly. Uh, and the Olympic lifting is is. I mean, I think you'd uh, agree that it's it's harder to learn proper Olympic lifting than it is to like learn a proper bench press, for instance. Uh, well, yeah. Most especially you start adding. Especially if, especially if you don't know how to teach the movement. Sure. You know, it's, it's much easier to teach a bench press than it is to teach a clean or a snatch. Yeah. For a person that's not very good at doing that. Yeah, yeah. But but uh, so you have these people that you know they're they're just there to get in shape and you know and they're they're trying to perform these Olympic lifts that they've been trained on improperly and then they're being pushed by all their friends. Come on, do it. Come on, add some more weight. Get it, get it, get it. And then mm-hmm. they get hurt. Like, oh, what a surprise! Mm-hmm. Shocking, shocking. Because uh, you know there there are, there are structural explanations for for why that occurs that are you know, outside the scope of a general discussion like this, but it's intuitively obvious to everybody that if you are executing a motion that's extremely dependent on repetitive movement pattern accuracy, yes. then, in other words, the kind of thing that practice perfects. Yep. Now, here's another vocabulary word. Practice is the way we perfect a repetitive movement pattern that is extremely dependent on accuracy and precision. Mm-hmm. It cannot be approached randomly, or even with constant variation. Now, can it? Mm. Uh, how do you? I, I can. I can relate. I'm. I'm picking up golf, so I can relate. Yeah. On. <laughs> you can't. You can't become a better golfer by playing tennis. <laughs> you can't become a better tennis player by playing. Uh, Ping pong. Even racquetball. Yeah. Because even though it's similar, it's not the same thing. Right. Something that demands uh, a high amount, a high degree of precision repetition of an accurate movement pattern requires practice specific to that skill. Yep. That's what practice is. Practice is different to training, isn't it? Yeah. And usually that that's going to mean breaking the whole movement down into pieces and oh, it, it, it sometimes does. Yeah. Now, that, that is not... Olympic lifting is not. That's, your, that's totally your world. I, I just, right. in general, Olympic if you're... Lifting, people have tried, in the United States, people have tried to do it that way for a long, long time, and it doesn't work very well. Mm. Uh, hang snatches, 
um, don't really get you good at doing a full squat snatch off the floor. So it's, it, you know, that's a little bit more technical than we need to deal with. Today. Yeah, but, yeah. But practice is extremely dependent on the precise repetition of the thing you want to do. How does a pitcher learn to pitch? He doesn't play golf. He pitches. Mm-hmm. How does the how do you learn to play the piano for God's sake? And also, you, you have to learn it. You got to learn the easy stuff. You don't just go into you know if you're take take pitching or piano. You're not going to try to play some Beethoven right away. You're going to you're well, going to you, you can't you can't yeah. you have to learn. But that's the equivalent the of CrossFit. The basics can only be learned by repeating the basics over and over and over. Repetitive, constant repetition of the same movement pattern is how you learn. Anything that requires practice. Yeah. Constant variation doesn't do a very good job. Exactly. And that's where poor coaching screws people over is because they that's don't absolutely know. absolutely true. You, you know, if you don't have an opportunity to coach a guy through the snatch, you know, at least four times a week, he's not going to get very good because although once you've learned the movement, it's not that complicated. I mean, it's only a, it's a snatch, for God's sakes. It's yeah. not like judo or downhill skiing. It's a, it's a snatch, but it is a skill-dependent movement. The bar must move in a certain pathway that you must learn to repeat with both light and heavy weights yep. and with weights that will win the meet. So all of this stuff has to be practiced. These skill-dependent movements must be practiced over and over and over. And if, you know, the same way you learn how to shoot, you have to run a bunch of rounds through the weapon. Hmm. And you have to learn how to do it. And repetitive motion is how it's how it's accomplished. And accurate motion, though, or you're going to ingrain incorrect motion patterns, and then you know, absolutely, you start adding. Absolutely. You know, it might not be a big deal when you're just using a bar, and you're maybe using, but then you start adding weight to it, and all of a sudden, the the you know, it all falls apart. Well, here's a here's an interesting question. Can you learn how to snatch a barbell with a piece of PVC? I uh, I have never tried, but I don't. Okay. I, I would I wouldn't think so. You need the weight of it, right? Because it's well, yeah, it's a different deal. I mean, yeah. if you're you know what constrains the movement, you have to learn how to move the barbell yeah. in a bar path that will generate the rack at the top of the snatch and a piece of PVC that weighs a you know uh, fifty five grams is not going to reproduce allow you to reproduce the same movement pattern that is necessary to do it with 100 kilos on the bar. Yeah. You know, these things are specific. Yeah. They must be practiced specifically, and a 55-gram piece of PVC is not specific to Olympic weightlifting. Yeah, totally makes sense. So, I mean, there's, you know, there's all kinds of problems, but uh, at any rate. Yeah, I think those that, that that's a good uh, summary of of the the matter. Um, so let's shift here quickly to another subject, which is something that I've kind of wondered about. I haven't been able to find much good research on it, um, and I, yeah, I haven't heard. I don't know. Whenever I talk to people like you, they have a lot of experience. I, it's it's something I, I'm kind of always curious about. Is what are your thoughts on? And just based on your experience, obviously this is an anecdotal thing, but what are what are your thoughts um, on the the, the upper lim- limits of of strength that a person can achieve naturally? I've, I've seen some good models out there for lean mass that you know uh, using fat free mass index and such that you can get pretty you can accurately semi accurately tell somebody okay you're probably going to max out somewhere around here in terms of total lean mass, but you know, strength, I've kind of wondered about that. Like, is, do you think there yeah. is a ceiling or? Well, and I, I also think that, that there is a, 
a rather tenuous relationship between the amount of lean mass a person d- displays at a certain height and body weight yeah. and the amount of strength that that particular phenotype can generate. Yeah. Because there are a bunch of variables in terms of how strong you get. Uh, you know, there are, there are just lots and lots and lots of variables, and it's, it's terribly difficult to say what a guy's, how strong a guy's going to be uh, based on what he looks like. Like, do you? What, what essentially we're saying. Do you remember Mike McDonald? There was a guy by the name of Mike McDonald that was a power lifter back in the late 70s. And Mike McDonald benched 600 at 198 with a 16-inch arm. That's just superhuman freak. Yeah, it's superhuman freak strength. And you see this guy, he he does not look like he can bench four. And he was an amazing, amazing specimen. Yeah, I've seen guys like that in the gym. Not 600, but I've seen guys putting up 315 where I actually thought, like, I need to go over, this is gonna, this guy is about to kill himself, and then they just right. rep it. I'm like, what? What did I just see? You, you can't tell by looking yeah. is what it boils down to because there are other considerations operating in there that you can't see. They're obviously the hormonal milieu yeah. that, that are very wildly from individual to individual, whether you're taking steroids or not. Yeah. Some guys have more testosterone than other guys. Yeah. They just, I'm sorry, they do. Yeah. You know. And if it becomes guys, a big enough number, it can make a difference. Right, it certainly can. Yeah. Uh, some guys want it more. Mm. As a result, will train harder. Right. Are capable of pushing themselves harder. Right. Some guys' livers are better. In other words, their, their, their muscle attachments around their joints and all these things that contribute to the effective moment force that you can generate around a joint all of that varies with the individual as yeah. well and all stuff you it's can't extremely see complicated it's hard to investigate yeah and and here's another extremely important thing that that uh will have a lot to do with a, with a person's ultimate ability to generate force and that is their uh genetic capacity for explosion their power mm. A guy with a 36-inch vertical jump that walks in the gym will eventually be stronger than a guy with a 22-inch vertical jump that walks in the gym. Guys that start off with big verticals get strong faster and get stronger than guys with small verticals. Yeah, I've heard. I've now, actually that doesn't mean. That. Now, let me let me let me make a caveat here. That doesn't mean that a guy with a 22 inch vertical can't get real god awful strong. Right. Because he, because he can. But the guy with the big vertical has got a neuromuscular situation that is different than the guy with the low vertical. He's he's more efficient in a neuromuscular sense. Yeah, I remember reading about that recently. That that alone was a uh, was like a one of the best single predictors of um I don't remember which sport. It was uh, might have been football or just just that their athletic for, for any capacity. sport that requires power. Yeah. Any sport that requires power. Yeah. And the 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 downside of this is is it's genetically controlled. Right. There you can't take a guy and there're going to be people calling you on the phone when I say this. <laughs> You, you can't take a guy with an 18-inch vertical jump and get him up to a 36. The only place that happens is on the Internet. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Right. Because these types of neurological uh, limitations are not 
terribly mutable. We can't train that very much. Right. To the extent we can train it, uh, the stronger your squat gets, the higher your vertical is going to be. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that you can take a 22 and make it into a 32. Right. It doesn't even usually mean you can take a 22 and turn it into a 26. It just doesn't vary that much. It's interesting. And, uh, and you know, there's going to be these guys that, you know, well, I've got to where I could jump over a car when I couldn't jump over a car before. It's not the same damn thing. The standing vertical jump with just one counter drop and a reach up, you know, like we measure on a vertex, doesn't move up very much. Now, I wish it did, but it didn't, you know. Yeah. And it, but, but you can find websites devoted to this bullshit. And it's just, it, look, the reason the standing vertical jump is so valuable as a test is because it can't be manipulated with training. Yep. It is a way for us to determine who we're talking to here. Who, what are the genetics of this guy? Do I want to hire him based on his genetics? Well, he's, he's got a 36-inch vertical. Well, I'm pretty sure he didn't get that up from an 18-inch vertical, so I see this guy's got a hell of a lot of potential for the development of power and strength. I'll hire him. Yep. So that's, you know, that's, that's one of the things that, that's real critical. So it's, it, it, the question you, of how strong can a guy get what do you think? Are, let's 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 phrase it this way. What do you think are? Because I get asked these types of things. That's why I wanted to run it by you. What do you think are some respectable? Like, what are some good? You know, longer term kind of goals, maybe related to body weight, that a person should be looking for in terms of, you know, some pulling, pushing, squatting. Well, I, you know, the, there's the old standard. You know, a guy weighs two hundred pounds. Yeah, ought to be able to press two hundred, bench press three hundred. Squat four hundred, and deadlift five hundred. And those are all one reps, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that's not a that's not a tremendous achievement, except that nowadays, a two hundred pound press for a body weight press for a guy is pretty damn good press. Yeah, that's that's good. That's hard. You know, so I would skew that. If I was going to say that, I'd probably say one hundred and seventy five pound press. Mm. You know, two seventy five bench, four hundred squat, five hundred deadlift. Yeah. A 200 is a good starting point. Yeah, I agree. It's a good starting point. Now, that's not indicative of a strength specialty because a 500-pound deadlift is just not that hard. Yeah. I can do that right now, and I'm 58. <laughs> you know, and I just basically trained to hang on. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to get stronger. I'm just hanging on. Right. And I can, pull, I can pull 500. But, you know, if you can't pull 500, you need to get where you can. You know, unless you weigh 110 pounds. Right. In which case, you're a female or a little short guy or something like that. But, <laughs> you know, all things being equal, a guy 5'9", 5'10", ought to weigh 200 pounds. He ought to be able to press 175. He ought to be able to bench 3. He ought to be able to bench 275. He ought to be able to squat 4, 4 and a quarter, 450. He ought to be able to deadlift 5, 5 and a quarter. He just ought to be able to do that. Yeah. Because that's not hard to do. Now, if we want to take and to qualify that, to qualify that, I mean, it it takes some time. It's not it's that it's going to take you a year and a half. Yeah, you know, but I'm, I'm, and, and this is assumes average genetic endowment. Right. You know, it's going to take you a year, year and a half, but it shouldn't take me longer than that. Right. It really shouldn't, because again, those are not 
depending on how you train. Don't represent a specialization in strength. They just they represent strength. Yeah, you ought to be that strong guy. Ought to be that strong. Now, what can that same guy do at that same body weight? Well, at some point, you reach the end of the capacity of the muscle mass that you've got right now to generate increased amounts of force. Yeah. At which point, you have to grow, which means your body weight has to go up. Yep. You know, what would be what would represent a strength specialization body weight with an athletic amount of, of body fat at 5'9"? Oh, I think you'd have to say 245. 245 pounds? Yeah. I mean, you, at five you nine, a that's as strong a, as he can get at 5'9". You know, look that's at, a look big, at that's a big Ed boy. Cohen, Ed, yeah, but Ed Cohen competed at, at 242, and Ed's 5'5". Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, there, there are outliers, you know, but if, you're, if we're talking in terms of the, uh, like, a, how tall, uh, how much will a six-foot-tall guy weigh if he's real, real strong? And I'm not talking about a competitive lifter, but a guy that's real strong is an athlete at six foot. Uh, it depends on body fat, right? But it'd be somewhere around 200. At, at an athletic body fat of 15%, how, what would he do? Mm, I would say probably, what do you think, 200 to 215, 210, something around there? Oh, I'd say 250. I'd say 250, Mike. I think you need to start upwardly adjusting your body mass estimations because a six-foot-tall guy that has trained for four or five years for strength yeah. is going to weigh 250. Yeah, he is. And if he doesn't weigh 250, then he hadn't tapped his potential. Hmm. I, I think you've got to... See, you're, you're confused. I, I just don't know. I wish I knew more guys like this. I just don't. My gym is full of goobers. <laughs> you know, you've, you've, you've got to be around a bunch of strength training people. I wish. Pushing their strength numbers. I wish I had strength, that. Strength numbers require a heavier body weight because at some point the muscle has to grow. Yeah. And bigger muscles weigh more than smaller muscles. <laughs> a guy six foot is going to, and that's not a particularly tall guy. Right. And 250 is not a particularly high body weight. But you take a big, strong athlete that's six foot, I mean six five, six six. Yeah. He's 300 pounds. Yeah, I mean, These guys are... in the NFL, I mean, look at them. Yeah. Even lean, they're 300 pounds. Yeah, they're monsters. 275, they're just monsters. They're not like we are. Yeah. But you take a guy that's 5'8", my height. You know, I competed at, at 220. And I was probably carrying 12% body fat at the time. And I tell you, as a fact, I was not heavy enough to be in, uh, to be standing there at 5'8 as a power lift. Mm. That's, the, that's the biggest mistake that I made mm. in my training, was to not take my body weight on up to 242 or even more. Because at, at my height, Okay. Look Look at the Nationals. Go to the Nationals, and how tall are the guys in the 181? They're 5'4", five, 5'5". Five, five. Yeah. <laughs> they're huge. They're huge. Yeah. They're huge. And they're not fat people. Yeah. You know, you, yeah, I mean, I guess also I just think of my, my, my body weight's always been strangely low. I'm, I'm about 6'2". Right now I weigh about probably 188. I'm pretty lean, though, about 7%, 7.5, yeah, whatever. Yeah, and, I, and, you know, I, if I had you to train, 
Mike, my friend, our first goal would be to get you 200 pounds, and that'd take me about two weeks. <laughs> because I would tell you to quit worrying about your body fat, and let's go ahead and get strong. Yeah, no, I know. I'm I mean, sure that's... you look like a. I'm sure you're an Adonis. <laughs> I'm sure you're an Adonis with abs, flowing golden locks, that sort of shit. But I'm telling you. If you want to get strong, a guy at your height is going to have to gain a bunch of weight. Yes, no, you're totally right. You're totally right, and it's it's a uh, it's what I don't know. You know, I like I like being lean, and in it's I guess in my world because I, I do have to show that I walk the walk. You know what I mean? And I'm and well, I'm, it just depends on what a guy wants out of his training. You know? Yeah. Th- this is this is the way I've always looked at it. If I look at you in pants and a long sleeve shirt. Can I tell that you train? You could. And at six foot one eighty, six two one eighty, I can't. You could. You, you'd be surprised. My weight, my weight is deceptive. But my at six two two seventy five, there wouldn't be any question. That's how it is. You got a guy with a six two two seventy five. 40-inch waist. You say nothing. All You, you just shake You're that guy's hand. You're going to look like you train, my friend. You just, You're going to look like you train. You shake that guy's hand. <laughs> um, all right. Let's, let's, let's move on quickly to the last thing I want to touch on here, which is um, it was a few months ago. I want to say May-ish. I read an article of yours. Uh, it was on T Nation about some of the problems uh, with exercise science, and I really liked it. Um, because I, I run into, um, I, I don't run into it that much. I run into it here and there where people come to me with, um, uh, and I, I, I totally welcome people to argue with things I say, and I'm open to, Hey, you know, share more information. I don't pretend like I know everything. Uh, but where people come to me with, with, uh, that that haven't really achieved much in the way of building strength or building muscle, um, but they have you know they have a big fat PubMed account and they'll come to me with almost like using using uh, studies like poker chips where like they'll see my study that I cited for this one thing where I was talking about the importance of heavy weightlifting and they're going to raise me three poker chip studies. Uh, you know what I mean? I'll that say says that two studies and raise you three. Yeah, raise you oh. three. That says you know if I do thirty rep workouts every day, I'm going to get even bigger and stronger like okay well why don't you do that first so and I, I, I liked your article and i thought it's a relevant site you know it'd be great for the listeners to kind of hear your your views on kind of the some, some of the issues that are out there with exercise science and why we can't just take papers as as dogma and say oh well this study said this and that's it or, you know, or even worse read the abstract and be like oh okay i understand that now yeah you can't read the abstract it's, you know an abstract is an excellent way to lie about your study <laughs> and uh <laughs> or it, it's like this like in the absence of a bunch of controlled peer review studies about any phenomenon what do you have to rely on in order to understand it? In the absence of, of, of literature, quote-unquote, yeah. on the substance, what do you have to rely on for an understanding of that material? Yeah, other people's experience. What you have to rely on is a logical analysis of the things that you do know. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, what do I know, having been in this business for 38 years. I know a lot of stuff. Okay, now how much of it have I written down? Well, in this particular instance, quite a bit. But, uh, I haven't done any peer-reviewed studies on anything. 
because I don't need to. Right. Here's an example. And this this thing is the is probably the best way to illustrate the whole point you're trying to make, and I know we're short on time. Back in 2009, a study was published in the journal Strength and Conditioning Research, the NSCA's, quote, science, quote, unquote, journal. Uh, and the study dealt with the ability to generate, generate a one rep max on the bench press. And the problem was, actually, I'm not making this up. This is in the literature. So if you're running an evidence-based practice, then you can base your, your practice on this evidence. What was the difference in one RM strength while laying down on a bench or laying down balanced on a Swiss ball. I may have actually seen this paper. And and this is the paper that just made me decide, you know, I've got to I've got to drop my membership in this ridiculous organization. <laughs> I can't have my name as I can't have my name associated with these people. Uh, the study was published that and the conclusion drawn was there's not any difference in one rep max if you're balanced on a ball and if you're laying on a bench. Yeah. Now I don't need to see a study to know where I can generate the most force in a bench press on a stable or an unstable surface. I don't need to see this study to know that no one has ever bench pressed 600 pounds. On a BOSU ball. On a BOSU ball. <laughs> okay. The fact that the peer that the review committee accepted this paper for publication and reviewed it and said, yeah, we'll publish this, yeah. tells you quite a bit about both the people that wrote the study and the people that reviewed the study, doesn't it? Yeah. It tells you that they're not operating from the same standpoint of a logical analysis in the absence of the data that I am. Now, let's... Let's just assume for a minute that the data was useful, which it wasn't. It was like there were 11 people in the study or something like that. Right. And the, the strongest guy in the study bitched 250 or something like this. Yeah. And everybody was lighter than that. The shit was all over the place. And if you do an analysis, you just look at the data, the data is shit. Okay. That having, let's just ignore that. What kind of an idiot would think to ask the question, having ever been under a 300-pound bench press himself. <laughs> yeah, See, what's, the, what's, what's, what's the point? point? These people are not operating from a position of sufficient experience yeah. to even know what, what needs they to don't be. know. Yes, Where, what the actual good questions are. What are the good questions? That ain't one of them. <laughs> okay? That's not one of the good questions. That's not where we spend our money and our time. But if all you need is a publication credit for your master's degree, yeah. well, hey, what the hell? You know, if these idiots decided they'd publish it in the journal, well, what the hell? Yeah. The problem with that is, is now that thing's in the literature. If some clown operating a personal training practice doesn't see that there's a problem, and, you know, with this, with this data, with this conclusion, with even asking this question... You know, how are you going to get somebody strong if you base your assumptions about how to do it on that? Yep. 
And, you know, that's the problem I've got with, with exercise science right now, all in a nutshell right there. Yeah, no, and, and I, like I said, I, I run into it where, you know, um, I, I try to be very evidence-based in my research, and, but I don't discount um, the value of anecdotal uh, evidence that's out but there. Yeah, and, and I, a lot of in a lot of cases, that's all you've got. Yes, and you especially can. with you know, there's certain like you say, there are a lot of a lot of good questions that haven't been asked, and we don't have good peer-reviewed studies to to answer those questions. So, well, see, and here's the here's the assumption that they make that that you know people that aren't particularly sophisticated in terms of understanding science make. There are several different types of data. Data generated by a peer-reviewed study is one type of data, but it's not the only valuable data. Yeah. The data that I have accumulated over 38 years of experience, I think you would probably, you ignore that at your peril. You know, there's some stuff I know that the guys that wrote that study obviously don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you yeah, know, there's, there's more than one kind of data. I, I agree, and I, and I think that um, it's a good sign that when I'm when I'm you know if I come across somebody new in this space or whatever, and I want to check out their work, uh, it's a good sign if they are referencing the literature. If they, I mean, I, I of course you have to you can't take the citations just at the at face value. You have to look for yourself. So I think it's good that we see a lot of that out there. But um, what I think where it goes too far is where you have these PubMed warriors that. They they haven't actually really accomplished anything with a, a lot of this theory that they have, and they have paid this the, without the experience. You can find studies that would that would conclude just about anything. You could you sure. could actually just do everything wrong and have it all backed up by scientific research and get nowhere. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So, but, but let me let me clarify a point. You, I am not saying that scientific research, peer reviewed studies conducted like the kind that get published in peer-reviewed journals, is of no value. That's yeah. not what I'm saying at yeah. all. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that just because it has been peer-reviewed and published in a journal doesn't mean that it is either valuable or even correct. Yes. You have to know how to evaluate this stuff. And you can't get out of exercise science school with your bachelor's degree and accept that all of this research is like Jesus gave it. Yeah, it's the end. You know, it's it, you know, it's written in stone, and it's never going to change. This is the way it works. That's, that is a that's an excellent way to avoid having to think about stuff yourself, <laughs> and that's that's never acceptable. Yeah, a good example of that is uh, just the importance of heavy weightlifting, where you can find quite a bit of uh, research that supports that position. You can find quite a bit of research that says, "Hey, do a bunch of high rep stuff. It doesn't. It's all the same. You're going to build muscle. You're going to oh, yeah. build strength." And yeah, I, light weight for high reps is the same as heavy weight for low reps. Yes, you can find. Well, now, what you, kind of a moron would conclude that? I mean, that the, the physics of it is compl- I mean, you, but nonetheless, that's in the literature. Yep, I know it's out there. You'll build the same strength. You'll build the same muscle, especially with muscle growth. That's where it really like a lot. And 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 I uh, run into quite a few natural weightlifters that were doing the high rep stuff for a while, stuck, and then they they switch to more emphasis on the on the heavier. Um, and especially on compound, and lo and behold, their you know their muscles are growing larger than they had ever been, and they don't you know they're so surprised because traditional hypertrophy is supposed to be ten to twelve rep, and you know that's 
one of those things where where is the actual evidence of that? How did that even come about? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's uh, it came about from bad research yeah. done on leg extensions and extrapolated over to actual human behavior. It doesn't work. Yeah, and especially extrapolated over into, okay, so, yeah, you're looking at a single set of leg extensions or a couple weeks of leg extensions, whatever. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that a couple years, that is better than, you know, squatting heavy over two years. <laughs> it, it doesn't mean anything yeah. is, the, is the critical thing here. That kind of research doesn't mean anything. Mm. And furthermore, all of the research that indicates that high rep, that eight to twelve reps with a minute, you know, five to six sets with one minute between the the standard, the, yeah, that's the what standard I, recommendation for hypertrophy is irrelevant to someone who is not already deadlifting five fifty. Hmm. The the way to get big, the way to hypertrophy your muscles until you reach a certain point, which will vary with anyone, yeah. is to get those muscles strong. And how do we get muscles strong? With sets of five. Yeah. Sets of five, therefore, are the best way to hypertrophy, unless you're already real big. Yep. Yeah, and, and that's... Nobody, see, nobody wants to hear that, but that is, in fact, the case. A guy with a 200-pound deadlift is not as big through the muscles that do the deadlift as the guy with a 500-pound deadlift, and how? what's the best way to get the deadlift from 200 to 500? <laughs> sets of five. Lift heavy-ass weight. Lift heavy weights for sets of five. Yeah, that's how it's done. So that's the way to hypertrophy. Yep, and that's I mean that's that, that's what I preach. I mean that's in my book, Bigger, Leaner, Stronger. That's what it's all about: is four to six rep, heavy, heavy, progress over time. And all then, weight, it's the way it's done. Yep, it's the way it's for, always been done. And then for more advanced weightlifters, where with the higher rep, where you actually can move weight, you're not. And that's I think that's what you're referring to, right? Where you have yeah. you have enough strength to actually move real weight for ten reps, not you know right. Exactly. Pushing a guy the bar. with a two hundred pound deadlift can't do the same reps of ten same set of ten that a guy with a five hundred pound deadlift yeah. can do. And therefore the stress applied is not the same experience. Exactly. Yeah, okay, well, that's great. Um, I mean there's so many I, I would love to pick your brand. I know we we're already planning on a on a second podcast, which I'm excited to to get into with you. Um but uh, just so that in case the listeners don't know, where can they find you and your work? I mean, I, I recommend your work on my website. So you guys, I mean, you can find his books. You can find Starting Strength at you know at my website. But where can they? Where what's what's your world? We are at startingstrength.com, and all of my stuff is there. All of my, uh, in fact, this audio interview will be linked from startingstrength.com. Video interviews, audio interviews, all of my articles written for. Both my website and outside media are linked at startingstrength.com. We have more forums for discussion there than I can count. Yeah. Some of them are extremely high quality. Some of them showcase the uh, dregs of humanity. It's, and, called uh, the, it's called the Internet. Yeah, it's called the Internet. Yeah, we're <laughs> a representative sample of the Internet, I, I'm afraid. But uh, we have fun. We have intelligent conversations about all kinds of things there, in addition to articles about weightlifting and bodybuilding and, and powerlifting history, written by authors like Bill Starr, Marty Gallagher, Ken Leisner, Dr. Ken Leisner, uh, premieres with us tomorrow in an article, tomorrow being Wednesday, the whatever the hell it is in September, for yeah. those of you listening to this. September, today's the 9th, so tomorrow's the 10th. 
September 10th, Ken Leisner goes up on our website. And cool. his perspectives are always interesting. He's a, a staple in the Iron Game literature for the past 45 years, and uh, we're proud to feature him on the website as well as, you know, writing by our coaches, by the starting strength coach community, and uh, videos and all kinds of stuff. And it's a, it's a big website. Yeah, it's a great resource. Uh, it's, it's uh, and I, you know, startingstrength.com. That's where I'm at. Awesome, yeah, yeah. It's a great resource, definitely a, a site I recommend that everybody check out and just frequent regularly to, to get good, no-bullshit advice. All right, so uh, thanks again for taking the time, I, Mark, and then, uh, yeah, I'm, pleasure, I'm excited. It, yeah, I'm excited for the follow-up. We'll do it again. Yep. Hey, it's Mike again. Hope you like the podcast. If you did, uh, go ahead and subscribe. I put out new episodes every week or two um, where I talk about all kinds of things related to health and fitness and general wellness. Also, head over to my website at www.muscleforlife.com where you'll find not only past episodes of the podcast, but you'll also find uh, a bunch of different articles that I've written. Um, I release a new one almost every day, actually. I release kind of like four to six new articles a week. Um, and you can also find my books and everything else that I'm involved in over at muscleforlife.com. All right. Thanks again. Bye.